This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to another episode in the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Eric Katz to talk about the relationship between technology and the Holocaust. Tech evangelists tend to tell us that technology is inherently progressive, and in our society, we tend to believe them. We tend to invest in a kind of utopian mythology of technological progress, in which technology is inherently good, and more advanced technology is inherently better for us. But perhaps nowhere else is the danger of this belief clearer than it is in the Nazis' use of and championing of science to justify their genocidal campaign against the Jews, and their use of technology, and in particular, the efficiency provided by technology in their killing operations. In our conversation, Dr. Katz and I discuss the danger of believing that technology is inherently good, and we look at the role that technologists, entrepreneurs, and scientists played in engineering genocide. We think about how our current technologies may participate in some of the current atrocities around the world, and we think about what we can learn from the Nazi past about how our commitment to a vision of technological progress can go horrifically wrong. Dr. Eric Katz is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy in the Department of the Humanities at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He received a Bachelor's in Philosophy from Yale and a PhD in Philosophy from Boston University. His research focuses on environmental ethics, philosophy of technology, engineering ethics, Holocaust studies, and the synergistic connection among these fields. He's especially known for his criticism of the policy of ecological restoration. Dr. Katz has published over 80 articles and essays in these fields, as well as two books, Anne Frank's Tree, Nature's Confrontation with Technology, Domination, and the Holocaust, published by Whitehorse Press in 2015, and Nature as Subject, Human Obligation and Natural Community, published by Roman and Littlefield in 1997. He is the winner of the Choice Book Award for the Outstanding Academic Book for 1997 for the latter of these two books. He is the editor of Death by Design, Science, Technology, and Engineering in Nazi Germany, published by Pearson Longman in 2006. He has co-edited with Andrew Light, the collection Environmental Pragmatism, published by Rutledge Press in 1996, and with Andrew Light and David Rothenberg, the collection Beneath the Surface, Critical Essays in the Philosophy of Deep Ecology, published by MIT Press in 2000. He was the book review editor of the journal Environmental Ethics from 1996 to 2014, and he was the founding vice president of the International Society for Environmental Ethics in 1990. From 1991 to 2007, he was the director of the Science, Technology, and Society program at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. His current research investigates science, technology, and environmental policy in Nazi Germany. Hi, Eric. Hello. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So, Eric, the title of this episode is Technological Utopianism Gone Wrong, The Case of the Holocaust. And I gave the episode this title because I think it gets at, and I think that your work gets at, 
one of the really pernicious myths about tech culture. I live in Silicon Valley and a number of uh, technologists who I encounter seem to believe that technology is inherently progressive and therefore technology has a morally uh, sound good inherently. Part of it, I think, is that technological progress tends to be couched in terms of enacting or realizing a moral vision. And technologists are often cast as moral visionaries. I think they think of themselves as moral visionaries. Now, I think that it's somewhat obvious to say that all ideas and ideals and even the most beneficent of ideals are capable of being twisted into their opposites and can be used in terms of harms. And that someone can enlist in a utopian vision in the service of horrific crimes. However we feel about it, I think Nazism was a moral vision, um, one whose absolute morality required the total eradication of Jews. But I wonder whether science and technology as a kind of utopian vision has a specific register or a danger as a way of thinking. Is there something specific about technological utopianism that makes such thinking exceptionally dangerous as a form of utopian thinking? I don't think there's anything inherent in technology and science per se that makes it dangerous. I mean, this is really, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, and this is really one of the oldest philosophical problems or questions that there is. I mean, it goes back to Socrates. I mean, Socrates said that no person ever consciously does any evil act because in their mind, when they are acting, they are acting for the good, right? And so... I mean, I think Socrates was wrong there. I mean, I think there are people who are actual sociopaths who uh, who delight in uh, doing evil. But for the vast majority of people, and this includes engineers and technologists and scientists, they are acting for what they perceive to be the good. Right. So the problem is that I think technology, and there, this is where it's different than science, Technology has a self-image, right? or technologists have a self-image, that they are creating artifacts, they are creating things that are for the human good. That means that the, their very definition of what their activity is, is progressive, right? Because if you're creating a good, you're improving human life, right? And so in that sense, they believe that they are improving human life with whatever creation they make. I think that's different than other academic disciplines um, in that, particularly a scientist, for example. A scientist, you know, his or her definition of what he is doing is searching for knowledge. That knowledge may turn out to be dangerous, right, or may lead to some kind of evil application. But the scientist doesn't really care because the scientist, the story they tell themselves is that they are just pursuing knowledge for its own sake. So it doesn't have to be inherently progressive. But technology is different in that the goal is to create, as I said, to create something that will improve human life. So that makes it seem progressive no matter what. You know, this is interesting. I am not a philosopher by training, but I do teach in the context of uh, my technically human course, Plato and Aristotle as our kind of bedrock of how we think about how we define the nature of the good. And for both Plato and for Aristotle, at least in my reading, the pursuit of knowledge itself is itself a good. And science following your 
presumption that the pursuit of knowledge is the pursuit of knowledge would philosophically, at least for some important thinkers, um, be the pursuit of the good itself, purely from the pursuit of knowledge perspective. Yeah, but that's that's at a different level. Okay, yes, the, the pursuit of knowledge is itself a good, right? But that doesn't make the the development of the knowledge itself a good, because the the knowledge could be evil knowledge. But that's different than I think the way technology operates, right? Technology, by its very definition, is the creation of artifacts for human betterment. So I think it's different, right? I mean, what Plato and Aristotle talk about the pursuit of knowledge, that's, that's a good at a meta level, I think, rather than at a, at a practical level. When I think about Silicon Valley and when I think about the kind of technological utopianism that I think governs at Silicon Valley, I get very concerned about it because I think that this myth that technological production is inherently good at itself has proven to be very dangerous. A while back, I was speaking with the bioethicist uh, Art Kaplan on the show. He's over at NYU and he's written extensively over uh, about the ethics of, of Nazi science. When we talked about the idea that uh, people are asked to fulfill a task even one that they know will cause pain to the subject. And when even when they're told that the task is in the service of science and technology, but that it will cause significant pain to their subjects, they're willing to do terrible things. One study that I recall asked a group to hit a button that would deliver increasingly painful shocks to the other group in the study. And the first group was willing to do it, even when they could see that they were causing horrific suffering, but only... They were only willing to do it only when they were told that there was a scientific benefit. Why do you think that we tend to think that scientific or technological progress is inherently good in that way? Well, again, and here I still, I still separate technology and science, right? The whole purpose of technology is to create improvements in human life. So people are willing to sacrifice certain ideals or presumptions in order to, to further that end. Science, I'm not so sure about. If we want to talk about the Nazis and utopianism, too, in terms of this technological progress, I mean, again, we have to emphasize something you said in, in the opening. The Nazi engineers believed that they were creating a utopia. They believed that they were creating a new world order that would vastly improve human life. And so they were willing to do what we consider to be horrific things. There's a story that I got from the historian Mike Allen, right, who did a lot of research on the, the actual lives of the Nazi engineers. I used this story, I think, at the, in, in, in my essay on the Nazi engineers. You know, it's about an SS engineer whose job was to go and troubleshoot at uh, various labor camps and correct problems. So Alan tells the story of this engineer going to a uh, camp, Grossrosen, and the problem he had to solve was that the cooks were giving the Jewish slave laborers extra potatoes. That was the problem. Now, from any kind of rational economic perspective, the fact that the cook was giving the slave laborers some extra potatoes in their rations would be good. Right, it would improve their efficiency as workers. It would improve the um, overall operation of the slave labor camp. But 
For this Nazi engineer, this was a problem because it violated the ideological principles of National Socialism that he was trying to implement into the camp. Alice in Wonderland, look through the looking glass. We have to put ourselves in the mind of this engineer working for the SS. He had a well-thought-out, positive vision of how human life on the entire planet was going to be improved. And part of that vision meant not giving extra potatoes to the slave laborers in this camp. So for him, political progress was connected to what we, almost 100 years later, look at and say, wow, how could he have thought that that was good? But he did think it was good. He didn't have to rationalize this. He didn't have to come up with an excuse for it. He just felt that he was doing good, just the way you and I might feel we're doing good when we recycle our garbage correctly. I mean, it's just something that is obviously good and it's going to make a better world. When you teach this to your students, are they shocked? Are they baffled? You know, you and I both share the context of teaching at a polytechnic university, or at least uh, at a certain point in your career, you shared that context. Both of us also teach in the humanities, I in the English literature department, you in the philosophy department. How do or how did your students in this context think about ethics in the context of technological production? Were they, as I said, shocked by your claim that technological progress is not inherently good? First of all, let me say that I taught in the humanities department at NGIT. Not, not, there was no philosophy department per se. This question, I think, has two parts. Many of my students were, were shocked by what they learned of the engineers' actions and other technological professions' uh, actions during the, the Nazi period. But in part, that was because of the population that I taught at NGIT. NGIT, when I got there, and first started in the 1990s, I think had the largest international student population by percentage of any uh, technological university in the, in the United States. So I, I had a lot of students who had never studied the Holocaust like American students do in high school. For some of them, this was, they, they had never even heard of this, right? Um, right? And they were just totally blown away by the fact that engineers and other technological professionals could participate in these kinds of activities. I think the American students were more aware of that this had gone on, but they too were pretty shocked that, you know, engineers just did this. But the more general point about teaching ethics to engineering students is that they have to get over the resistance of this is just something extra to what I'm supposed to be learning, right? I mean, I want to learn how to design stuff, whether it's in computing or chemical engineering or mechanical engineering or whatever. I want to learn how to design stuff, right? And you're saddling me with a whole bunch of extra questions that I have to ask, right? And they would see the relevance of the questions, but they would sort of resist into why do I have to spend this extra time doing it, right? So I think that was the challenge for teaching ethics of any kind to students in a technological university, right, is that they, they don't see it as, as a primary mission of their education, a primary goal of their education, right? Unlike we do, of course, we see it as a, as a primary goal of their education to, 
to turn out not just technically capable engineers, but uh, morally capable engineers also. This is really interesting for me. I think about this quite a bit when I teach the context of the Holocaust in the purpose of delivering a broader moral message. And one of the things that I think about is that when I talk about the Holocaust, I'm talking about a point of moral extremity. I'm talking about people who are acting in a morally extreme way, people who are pressured to respond under extreme moral conditions. And then I wonder about the efficacy of teaching a moral lesson in the context of the most extreme case of it. Sometimes I say, well, if we want to understand the dimensions of the phenomena that we want to start with the most extreme case, and sometimes I say, well, is the most extreme case really the way to teach people how to behave in contexts that are not morally extreme? Should I perhaps pick a more commonplace context for teaching ethics. What's your thought? Why think about the most moral extreme case, and I think that many of us would think of the Holocaust as a morally extreme case, for thinking about the ethics of technological production? It's interesting you say this because I, when I came to NGIT back in 1989, the reason they hired me, I was the first philosopher they'd ever really hired to teach there, and I was asked to design the engineering ethics program. Right, which they had never had before. Right? And my view of engineering ethics, I think, was radically different than almost every person out there, every textbook out there teaching engineering ethics, which was always based on a kind of, oh, this catastrophe happened. What went wrong and were the engineers responsible? What could they have done differently? So whether it was the Challenger or the Citicorp building in New York or uh, the Ford Pinto, Right. It was always some kind of catastrophe. And I said, well, wait a second. Most engineering students are never going to be in that position. Mm -hmm. We have to teach them that ethics is something that is there on their job every single day. So why don't we look at some successful case histories, mm -hmm. histories of things that went right and see where were the ethical decisions made during those? So I used to always start my course off with um, Tracy Kidder's Soul of a New Machine, which, I, you know, the book about the, uh, the development of the first generation of uh, small computers. It's a marvelous book because he, he's not really looking at ethics per se, but it comes out almost on every single page, right, about what the engineers did. And then over the course of the semester, I would get to, at the end of the semester, what I called worst case scenarios where things went totally wrong. And I used two cases in the worst case scenarios, the Holocaust, but I also used the Bhopal uh, disaster, the, uh, the explosion at Bhopal, the Bhopal Union Carbide Plant. And the difference, of course, was that the Bhopal case, you could say, was an accident, though an accident waiting to happen because of poor design. But the Holocaust, of course, was not an accident. The Holocaust was perfectly designed the way that they wanted it to happen. So I think you need, when you're teaching engineering ethics, when you're teaching ethics to technological professionals, you need to have the entire spectrum of cases, things that go right and things that go wrong, and to, and to, un, and to unpack the ethical decisions that are made in all kinds of cases. So originally when I was talking about engineering ethics and the Holocaust and the role of engineers. It was actually a very small unit in a, in a, in a broader, you know, 14 week course. I mean, I only did that two weeks on that, 
because I didn't want to, um, you know, just inundate them with my fascination with this problem. Eventually, I decided to take take that and teach an entire course on called Nazi Science and Technology, which looked at lots of different case studies within the Nazi regime about development of science and technology. So that that you know, there you could say, well, the entire case, the entire course is a, a worse case, or as you say, um, a, a case of extremities. But I wanted to do that because my overall point to the students in that course was to show them that all science and technological decisions are politically and morally uh, embedded in a social context. Right? So there's no such thing as a pure scientist. There's, there may be a a, in a, there's an American scientist in 21st century Silicon Valley, right? There's a, there's a Nazi scientist um, in, you know, in 1938 uh, Munich, Germany. Where and when you do your science and technology is going to affect the decisions you make about what you seek in knowledge and what you create as an artifact. And to push on that a little bit, you know, I, I've read that you uh, have argued forcefully against the assumption that has been advanced by people like the Nazi architect, Albert Speer, who rose from Hitler's architect to the head of the entire industrial system of Nazi Germany, that technology is morally and politically neutral. What is wrong to put a fine point on it with that assumption? Why isn't technology neutral? What argument do you make against this assumption when you make it to your undergraduates? All right. Well, to me, the idea that technology is morally neutral is the the biggest sin, the one giant mistake that technological professionals um, uh, accept. Right? And I would tell my students in any class that I taught, if you only learn one thing from my professorship, my tutelage to you, I want you to leave this university knowing that technology and science are not morally neutral. It's usually a tough sell because almost all of their professors, their technological, their technology professors, their engineering professors, their science professors, believe this myth that science and technology are morally neutral. So I'm going against the tide. But the arguments are pretty clear, and I think I convinced most of them. I get most of my arguments about this topic from uh, the political theorist Langdon Winner, who coincidentally grew up in the area of your university and wrote about it in his book, The Whale and the Reactor. But his argument, he has a famous essay called Do Artifacts Have Politics? And in it, he presents several case studies to show how artifacts, technological objects are embedded with particular social, moral, and political values. And I can go over some of these cases if you want, but the, the, the more th the theoretical argument is that when it comes to a technological artifact, the person designing it has to have an idea about what this artifact is supposed to do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be created. No artifact is created without an intention, without a purpose in mind for what it's supposed to do. But so intention and purpose as any moral philosopher will tell you, involves a value. If this is supposed to do something, the question is, is that something good or evil? It can't be neutral. I mean, I used to give my students the example of the, the thing that I can think of as the most neutral object ever created 
was what we used to call dealy boppers back when I was uh, a, a teenager. You know, these little metal things you stick on your head, you know, that look like uh, like bug antenna, right? I'm thinking, okay, there's a pretty neutral object, okay? But even that has a purpose to uh, amuse people, to, to have fun with. So totally meaningless, but uh, it still it still has a purpose. So if an object has a purpose, then the designer had an intention, right? And that means that it has some kind of value, right? And that would reason why no technological object is neutral. One less morally extreme, but still, I think, oftentimes considered a moral extremity case of this, and again, less morally extreme than the Holocaust, but a moral extremity, is the conversation around guns. One argument says, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And another side of that argument says, actually, guns are designed, particularly the guns that are consistently used in some of the grave and horrific cases of gun violence in the United States, to kill people. Now, uh, we are recording this in a particular moment where there has just been another school shooting. I won't say which one, but I can guarantee you that at the time this episode is released, whenever that is, there will have been another school shooting. How do you think about this argument that all technologies are designed with a purpose, that that purpose is frequently political or created in the context of a political milieu? And how do you think about the analogy to the guns don't kill people, people kill people versus guns are designed so that people can kill people argument? Do you think that that's a fair analogy? Do you think that this analogy warrants uh, use in thinking about the the larger conversation about technological ethics? Well, yeah, I used the gun example to my class. I mean, I say to them that the, the NRA's slogan, guns don't p- kill people, people kill people, is the perfect embodiment of the neutrality thesis, the idea that, you know, the idea that technology is neutral. And then I say to them, but look, that's just not true. Yeah, in a sense, the gun could be used for good or bad purposes, right? If I use the gun to shoot somebody and rob them, then uh, it's a bad purpose. If arguably, if I use a gun to shoot somebody who's uh, attacking my home and threatening to kill me, then you could say, yeah, it's, a, it, it's arguably a good purpose. right? But take all that stuff away. Look at the artifact, the gun. The gun was designed and I say not necessarily to kill somebody, the gun is designed to inflict bodily harm, whether it be on a person or an animal, because guns can be used for hunting, obviously. And so there's no way around that. That is what the design of the gun is. So don't think of the social purpose of the gun, right, when you think about the, the value that's embedded in the artifact. The value that's embedded in a gun is the infliction of bodily harm, because that's the purpose of a gun. There's no other purpose for it. I forget what you want me to say. Something oh, I just wanted it. to know whether this is an appropriate analogy. Is it a useful analogy? In oh, thinking I think, about- again, I think students see that. And then we move on to other, you know, other kinds of cases where I want them to think, okay, what is the actual purpose here of the design of this particular artifact? So let me use now one of Langdon Winner's famous cases, 
and the reason I bring this up is my this is the one case my students always remember. I mean, I, I'll have students come back to me 10 years later and say, oh, that was the case that really convinced me. So and Winter got this from um, Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses, uh, the master builder, which came out a long time ago. And for your listeners, you may not know, but he was probably the most important and influential person uh, in the second half of the 20th century in America who was never elected to anything, right? I mean, he was the master builder of New York State and for 30 or 40 years was the, you know, the principal designer and uh, architect and mover of anything that was uh, designed in New York State. And he, he basically copied the, the German Autobahn system and designed the basic idea of um, the American Parkway and interstate system. Now, back in the 1930s, Moses was developing the Parkway system for New York State. And the Parkway system was called the Parkway system because all the roads led from Manhattan to a park outside of the city. And uh, of course, there were uh, limited access highways and other people could use them. You didn't have to drive to the park. But so that was that's what created the, the sort of interstate, you know, limited highway access system. Now, what Moses did when he designed the parkway system was he built the overpasses on the parkways to be extremely low. So these were, you know, concrete and brick overpasses. And so this would prevent trucks and commercial vehicles and buses from using the parkways. Now, the reason he did this was not only to limit commercial traffic on the parkways, but he wanted to limit buses going to the parks because Moses was a racist and an elitist. And he didn't want poor people to go to his beautiful parks outside the city. So only people who could afford private cars, which back in the 1930s was middle-class people, right, were able to use the, the parkways. So you would normally think that a highway overpass is a neutral technological object, right, that has no political or social value embedded in it. But Moses embedded his racism and his bias against poor people into the very design of the parkway system by making those overpasses so low. Some of them, I, I drive on these parkways all the time, and they have the little sign saying what the clearance is. I mean, there's one point as you approach JFK Airport where the overpass is seven feet, four inches high, which is incredibly low. Here's an example where what looks like a neutral object, politically and socially, actually has one man's particular values embedded in it. And uh, as I said, this is an example my students really take to. They really understand it. Um, and of course, the problem for 21st century Americans or New Yorkers who still use these parkways is that there's nothing you can do to get rid of this racism that's embedded. It, it, it's way too expensive to tear down these overpasses and build ones that are higher that would permit buses to go through them, right? And so, you know, you just, they're just, it's there. He's, he established this, this political and social value, which we consider evil, right? But he considered it good, but he established it in a way that we can, you know, we can't get rid of it.
I buy your argument about purpose. Absolutely. I think it's an extraordinarily potent example, but I want to push into it a little bit because I think that there are some cases that speak to our contemporary moment that are more problematic in terms of purpose. You write that, and I'm going to quote you here, any technological artifact must have a purpose before it is designed and created. Without such a purpose, there would be no reason to create the technology, but purpose implies a value. There are no neutral purposes. This is something that you said that I think that captures uh, the example that you just gave. Now, the context of the Holocaust supplies, I think, um, a clear example of a moment when technological artifacts had a clearly horrific purpose, at least what we think of now as a horrific purpose for those of us who understand the Nazi, the Nazi utopian vision as morally repulsive design of the crematoria, which is something that you talk about, for example, seems to be an obvious example of a technological product that had a specific purpose, which was burning bodies and whose design progressed further and further to accommodate the desire to burn massive numbers of bodies as a growing genocide, as we now call it, made necessary. But then how would you think about the majority of technological debates that we are currently having in this moment about technologies that have designs and visions that are perhaps less intentionally ethically wrong, where many of the consequences are unintentional. And I'll go back to an example that you gave earlier, which is Bhopal, to uh, quote one of the, I think, uh, strong legal thinkers on this, Jamie Castles. It was an accident waiting to happen, right? But that term waiting to happen as an accident seems to me to be a paradox. On the one hand, if something's an accident, then it's unforeseeable, unanticipatable. On the other hand, it was an accident waiting to happen, which means that it was altogether foreseeable that something could or would go wrong. How do we think about intentionality and purpose vis-a-vis the accident or the technological process that results in unintentional consequences? This is a point that I think used to drive my students absolutely crazy. Because once I got them to see that the creation of any artifact has purposes, and that you have to examine these purposes in order to decide whether what you're doing is the morally correct thing. They would buy that eventually. But then I'd say, okay, well, now your job as the designer of an artifact is to think of not only the purpose that you want to have happen with this artifact, you have to also start thinking about the unintended purposes, if we want to call them that, unintended consequences, or the entire range of actions and consequences that might occur from this object. And they would say to me, well, that's impossible. It'll take forever. And I say, no, it's not impossible. You have to be able to put yourself in the context of this. I mean, you mentioned a legal scholar, right? I mean, in my engineering ethics classes, we would get to the point about legal liability. And the whole idea that objects have to be designed, at least under U.S. law, so that anticipated misuses of a product have to be considered when you're designing the product. So I would go over that with them an example that was, to them, ancient history, the development of portable hair dryers, handheld hair dryers, okay, which is probably before your time also, <laughs> right? But the first generation of portable handheld hair dryers used to give people shocks all the time, electric shocks all the time, right? And it was pretty clear why, because people would use these in their bathrooms right out of the, right after they got out of the shower, right? And so it, they were used in damp environments when people were wet. And so it's an electrical object. And so 
the designers of these things had to go back to the drawing board and try and create a uh, handheld hair dryer that would not cause shocks in a damp environment. So it was an anticipated misuse, bad consequence of the object, and the engineers had to go back and figure it out how to solve it. Now, I used to tell my students a crazy story about from my own personal life that as an example of a consequence or an action by a user that under no circumstances could somebody anticipate, right? And so I tell them a story about myself standing in my bathroom holding my my portable hair dryer that's like a gun or a you know like an L-shaped thing, object and noticing that one of the pictures in my bathroom in the plaster is crooked. So I take the picture off the wall and I see that the nail is loose. And so without thinking, I took the hair dryer and start hammering the nail in. Okay. Of course, I was lucky that nothing happened, but I mean, this is, you know, an accident waiting to happen, as you would say. Right. So on the one hand, the engineer who designs the portable hair dryer and portable handheld hair dryer has to anticipate the idea that this is going to be used in a damp environment. There's no way that he could anticipate that it's going to be used by some idiot as a hammer, right, while it's plugged in, right? So there are consequences that we can anticipate, and there are consequences that we cannot anticipate. And I used to instruct my students, or try to get them to see, that it's their moral responsibility not only to think about the actual purpose of the object, but to think about all of the anticipated consequences. And that, by that, I mean uses and misuses of the object that they are creating. And only then can they say that they've created a, a morally good object. And so I think that this is something that applies to almost any technology, you know, we develop today. And, uh, you have to be able to think about how this thing is going to actually be used. Again, I'm not a user of social media, but I mean, the whole debate over Facebook and other social media and the invasion of privacy, right, and the limitation on speech and all these kinds of issues that come up with, in these kinds of uh, contexts, all that stuff should have been anticipated. That's the kind of thing that was obvious from the start. And the people who designed the technology, and designed the use of it and sold it to the public should have all thought about this kind of stuff. And whether they did or not, I don't know, because I'm not an expert in it, right? But if they didn't, then they are morally responsible for creating the, uh, the problems that we have. To corral the conversation back to the terrain on which we started, which is the Holocaust, there's, there is a particular case that I'm thinking about in the back of my mind as I ask these questions about the unintentional versus the intentional uh, consequences of technology and technology as it is designed with a purpose. And that case, I think, gets at important feature of what I'm talking about here, what we were talking about here, and that is the case of Zyklon B and its complicated technological history. And I want to spend some time outlining this case because I think it's an important case that gets at the crux of the matter here. Zyklon B was, of course, the chemical that the Nazis infamously used for mass murdering mostly Jewish inmates in the gas chambers. But that's not where the technology of that chemical began. 
To give a brief summary of that more complicated history of the technological process that led up to Zikon B, we would have to start with the German-Jewish chemist, Fritz Haber, who received the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1918 for his invention of what is famously known as the Haber-Bosch process, a method used in industry to synthesize ammonia from nitrogen gas and hydrogen gas. Haber's invention revolutionized large-scale synthesis of fertilizers with two-thirds of annual global food production today using nitrogen from the Haber-Bosch process. It's instrumental for food production, for the survival of large populations uh, on food supplies. And this, this supports today nearly half of the world's population. Then Fritz Haber, after winning the Nobel Prize for this life-saving invention, became and remained a fiercely nationalistic German. And he used that same technological innovation that had led to this immensely humanitarian technological development to then weaponize that invention, developing poisonous gases that the Germans used during World War I, which were responsible for massive death and suffering and ultimately led to the outlawing of chemical warfare. Haber was despised for this worldwide, but he was considered a hero in Germany up until Hitler's rise to power, where Haber, as a Jew, faced increasing scrutiny because although he was a hero, he was allowed to retain his lab, but as a Jew, he was imperiled and certainly his Jewish staff was imperiled. And when he was ordered to dismiss all Jewish personnel in the lab, Haber ultimately fled Germany, eventually dying stateless and poor in Switzerland. But after he left, the Nazis came into his lab, discovered that Haber had been working to once again find a new use for this technological process that he had engineered and this product that he had uh, developed. And what he had developed out of that process had become a potent insecticide called Zyklon A, which had a powerful scent to it so that humans could detect it. Important because that chemical was incredibly potent and was deadly for humans. The Nazis who came into his lab discovered this insecticide, took out the scent and called the result Zyklon B and used the chemical intended for insecticide instead for the purposes of mass murder of human beings. I pause on this example because what I take from it is that while, as you point out, purpose and innovation is essential to the development of technology, sometimes the worst consequences of technology are beyond the point of its proposed design. Or, or maybe I'm misunderstanding um, an essential lesson uh, morally at stake in the Haber narrative. What's your take on this example and its relationship to the argument about the purposive nature of technological production as core to our ethical determination about it? Should Haber have foreseen these consequences? Is there something transformative in the use or the change in the political dimension of the product itself? How do we think about purpose and design and intention in the context of a case like this? All right. Well, the Haber case is interesting because I it was it was the it's the first case study that I use in my course Nazi Science and Technology because I want to show my students how the politicization of scientific and technological uh, work takes place under any regime and Haber's first great sin we might say was to develop poison gas in World War One. 20 years before the Nazis rose to power. As you say, he took his invention, which is maybe the greatest discovery in chemistry in the entire history of mankind, and took it and then used it to uh, develop poison gas. There's a lot of things to say about this case. One is that Haber thought that 
he would be ending the war and saving millions of lives because he thought that on the first use of poison gas, if it was used correctly, the Western allies would surrender. And unfortunately, unfortunately for him, fortunately for us, I guess, the German military didn't want to use it in such a massive first test. And so it allowed the allies to develop their own poison gas in retaliation. What's interesting about this case, I think, is that Haber's justification for what he did after the war, when you said he became a kind of pariah in the international community, he used the neutrality argument as a means of defense. And so I show my students how this neutrality argument that we've been talking about is not just theoretical. People actually use it. I mean, his argument after the war was, hey, I just developed the stuff. How it was used was a political and military decision, and scientists have nothing to do with politics and the military. So he basically used the NRA argument. You know, gas doesn't kill people. People kill people using gas. So I just developed the gas, and uh, how it's used is not my concern. That was his basically his argument. That's you know one major issue I think with the case. The other is the case about purpose. Clearly, the two different Zyklon gases, A and B, one with the scent and one without the scent. The only reason to put the scent in the gas was to warn people that this insecticide was being used. The designer of the gas knew that it would kill both insects and people. Because if it, w- if it was not going to kill people, then there's no reason to put the warning scent into the gas, right? It's just like when we use insecticides today. I used to, I would tell my class, if you ever spray a bottle of Raid in your room, it has this sickly scent. That's to tell people that uh, there's uh, an insecticide there, right? So there's no unanticipated consequence here. There's no um, unknown effect. The designer of insecticides, in this case, Haber, knew exactly that it would also kill people. That's why he added the scent. Now, to me, the interesting thing in this case, which I would tell my students, is that eventually IG Farben, the great uh, chemical conglomerate of Germany, owned the patent to the gas. But they only owned the patent to the scent. So they were actually very upset when the SS started using the gas without the scent because it meant that they had no control over it anymore and that the SS could use the gas without the scent and perhaps get another chemical company to produce it. So what's the lesson to be learned here? (laughs) The lesson to be learned here is that clearly people understand the political and social consequences of the technologies that they're creating. There's no way anybody could argue that all of this was something that was unforeseen or unintended. And if it was foreseen, if it was intended, then people have a moral responsibility to make sure that what they're doing is the, is the correct thing. I'm intrigued by a particular point that you make, that technologies are not only developed in light of human values and embedded with those values, but also that they become woven in the fabric of human life. And as they become woven in the fabric of human life, they actively change our values as they restructure human life. Can you give us a case of this in the context of the Holocaust and maybe a case of this that you see happening in the contemporary moment? Well, it's much easier to give a case in a contemporary moment. 
This is a really good question about the Holocaust, though. Let me let me start with the contemporary moment. I mean, the most obvious example, right, just bangs us over the head is um, personal computing and smartphones. I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time when these things didn't exist. And they, of course, have totally revolutionized the way we live our lives, not only in the Western world and industrial world, but everywhere, right? Uh, I mean, if, if somebody doesn't have a smartphone, they're considered just like somebody who was considered a hermit, you know, back in the 19th century, right? And, and I say this as somebody who just got my first smartphone a month ago, right? I've never used one until a month ago, and I was forced to get one because I'm a season ticket holder for the local hockey team, and they no longer do physical ticketing. You have to have a smartphone in order to enter the stadium, right? Your tickets have to be on the smartphone. So it's a sort of trivial way in, in that case, but clearly smartphones have restructured the way we live our lives in a lot of ways. For one thing, everyone is expected to have one, especially any everybody in a professional class. And that means that you're expected to be in contact with people whenever. Again, I spent my entire university career, including six years as chairman of my department, without a smartphone. And people used to say, but what if somebody wants to get in contact you while you're on your way home? I said, well, it'll wait, right? I mean, nothing's that important. You can't get in contact with me. So cell phones and personal computers clearly have restructured our lives. Now, when we look at technology in the Nazi period, well, clearly, the technologies that I generally focus on with my students, the development of the death camps, the development of the crematoria and the gas chambers, those don't restructure the lives for everybody, only the unfortunate people that came in contact with the death camp system. But there are other technologies that we can look at in Nazi Germany that restructured life based on Nazi ideals. One of them I mentioned earlier, the Autobahn system. I mean, the Autobahn system was invented by Fritz Tote, the master builder and architect of the Nazi regime, who was killed suspiciously in a plane crash in 1942. But he developed the Autobahn as a highway system to implement national socialist ideals. And so we don't like to think about that. But, you know, whenever you're driving on a U.S. interstate, which is based on the Autobahn, right? I mean, it's, it's based on a Nazi conception of what roads should be. And Hitler wanted these roads for several reasons, not the least of which was a way to move military troops from one end of the country to another without having to use the rail system, right? It would be quicker to, you know, to have people drive in trucks, right, and uh, across the country. So that's, that's one example. Spears architecture. Architectural design is another example, I think. Speer had, uh, in part, in discussions with Hitler, Hitler was a failed artist. I don't know if people know this, but he always believed in a kind of aesthetic consideration of what he was doing. And he loved to sit around and talk about art and architecture with his minions. Though with Hitler, of course, talking is not really appropriate. He used to lecture people about whatever he, he thought he because he knew everything. Um, and uh, he and Speer had came up with this idea, which they called the theory of ruin value, which was that we want to build buildings so that 2,000, 5,000 years from now, when in ruins, 
people will look at them and say, wow, what a great civilization created these buildings, right? And so they designed massive buildings, most of which never got built because of the war. But Speer's conception for the new Reichstag building that was going to be in Berlin, the old Reichstag had been burned down probably by the Nazis themselves as a way to throw the, the 19, March 1933 election to them, right? They blamed a communist worker on the fire. Right? So they had to rebuild the Reichstag. And, and Speer's conception of it was a domed building, you know, like the Capitol Dome in the United States. But the dome would be 16 times the size of St. Peter's Church in the Vatican, which was the largest domed church in the world. 16 times the size. That's how big this was going to be. 100,000 people could stand in the, the area under the dome, right, uh, comfortably. Right? 100,000 people, that's the size of the largest football stadium in the United States. How does that incorporate political and social values? Well, it incorporates the ideology of the overwhelming power of the Nazi state. And I would ask my students, if you were one of the 100,000 people standing under the dome of this Reichstag building, how would it make you feel? Would it make you feel a powerful individual? And I think the idea is no. It would make you feel like, oh, I am just this small piece of this amazingly powerful nation, right? But I virtually mean nothing. Look how inconsequential I am and the size of this building. Right. And so I think Nazi architecture had a way that it would sort of impose ideological values, political and social values of the regime onto, you know, onto people. There's also a, a, a small case uh, sort of uh, taking from one technology to another. The Nazis also were proponents of cheap home radios. I mean, the radio had just been invented, really, in the 20s. And the Nazis developed a model of a radio that was so inexpensive that everybody could afford it. And it was almost mandatory that you had one in your home so that you could listen to not only Hitler's speeches, but also any other announcements or speeches by any other uh, Nazi government official, as well as all of the propaganda shows and and you know news reports and whatever right and so again we have to imagine a time when something like radio was not in everybody's house but in the Nazi regime in Nazi Germany it was right so this technology was created as a way to affect propaganda and affect the uh, the thinking of people and it was made uh, cheaply and produced for those technological purposes. So again, so these are all examples, I think, of the way technology um, changed people's lives. I mean, another one that the Nazis had, you know, they never really got to produce during because of the war was the Volkswagen. This was a car for the people. Again, it was supposed to be a cheap car that, uh, you know, that almost everybody could afford. And it was a way to change people's lives on the Autobahn. Again, it never bore the fruit before the war that Hitler had envisioned. But of course, the companies may, you know, stayed alive after the war. And as we all know, Volkswagen still exists as a, as a major car company.
So those are examples. I, I hope those, I hope that works. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about an argument that you make in an essay that you title Anne Frank's Tree, Thoughts on Domination and pa the Paradox of Progress, which I feel like expands on some of the ideas we talked about earlier in a broader comment about the human condition and represents through a kind of through line across your work. In that article, you say, I view domination as the fundamental evil that underlies the human relationship with both the natural world and other human beings, human communities, and human institutions. How do we understand domination and its relationship to both technological production and our understanding about progress? Domination, as you say, is a through line in, in a lot of my work. I mean, what we haven't talked about today is that a lot of my work involves the analyzing the ethical relationship between human beings and the natural environment. That's where I got my start in, in what we now call environmental philosophy or environmental ethics. The Anne Frank tree paper is a paper that brings my two main areas of research together, my interest in the natural environment and my interest in the horrors of the Holocaust and technological thinking, right? And so what I mean when I say that domination is the fundamental evil in our relationship to both other human beings and human communities and the natural environment, I mean that when we dominate something, we are preventing it from fulfilling its own free development, right? And if that's nature, we create a parking lot where there once was a, a forest. We've dominated the forest. We've destroyed the forest. We've, we've prevented the forest from continuing as a forest. Right? If I take a person and make him into a slave, I'm dominating him. I'm not letting him achieve the ideas, the goals that he wants to achieve. Those are extreme examples. Domination can be much more subtle. By not paying somebody a, a sufficient living wage, I'm dominating them because I am preventing them from achieving their goals. In that sense, domination is clearly the fundamental evil, we could say, in both the Holocaust and in many other evil technologies. Because what happens is that the technology interferes with, in some fundamental way, the, the free life or the free movement of the object uh, be, being dominated. Now, what happens, of course, when I say this is people that are believe that technology is progressive, they just they just they go crazy because technology also opens up possibilities of freedom, right? Technology also liberates us. Absolutely, that's true. I mean, look, you and I are talking. You know, we're you know we're three thousand miles apart. Right? I mean, this kind of conversation couldn't have happened without you know technology. So. This is a liberating experience. I mean, you know, if we assume that what we're doing is, is good and progressive. <laughs> if we assume that it's good. <laughs> good, and, good and progressive. We're, we're, you know, we're helping to liberate people and liberate their ideas and make a better life for people. So sure, the whole idea of the liberation and domination axis, again, is something that uh, depends on context and depends on how uh, the technology is conceived, how it's designed, and how it's used. Right? I mean, all of these things, you know, you know, are part of it. 
We're getting to the close of the conversation. So I want to just ask two last questions that I think bring us back to the core of this project. The context for the series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value for you do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play? Or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and a better thinking about what we do when we envision, design, and create technologies? This is a real pretty softball question for, for asking a humanist, right? I mean, I mean we obviously <laughs> think that what we do is important. Tell us why we should keep giving you jobs. <laughs> we, yeah, right. we, we obviously think that what we do is important. I mean, look, I mean, the fundamental thing about humanities, and again, you know, this is not, I'm not saying this, people have been saying this for hundreds of years, right? Um, creates critical thinkers. It makes people think about the context of their activities. Right? I want my students to think about not only the object that they're creating, but the, the social, political, historical, cultural context in which it is going to be used. To do that, you need to have some kind of broad understanding of society and culture. So it's not just the humanities, even. It's also the social sciences, right? I mean, um, right? I mean, students should also be learning, uh, you know, psychology and sociology, as well as English literature and philosophy and history. I mean, all of these things are important because it helps you understand the context of what you're doing. I mean, my students, you know, the ones who were always resistant to this kind of study would say, look, it's just a job. Right. I'm just doing it. Somebody's paying me. I'm doing it. That's all I have to think about. I do what the boss wants. Right. And I get paid. There's no other context to think about. Right. Well, of course, that that's such a narrow way of thinking. Right. And you have to try to get them out of that kind of narrow way of thinking about things and think about the, the broader social parameters of what they're doing. I mean, that's that's I mean, that's that's what it's all about. And interesting, you know, when I, I told I, I mentioned earlier about the you know the Tracy Kidder book, The Soul of a New Machine, about the the good case study in engineering ethics. You know, Kidder spent a lot of time interviewing the engineers that were you know that were in the book, and and almost every single one of them talked about this kind of stuff. They just didn't want to create a machine. They had an idea of where the machine put you know fell in society. You know what its context was. What you know, what they were doing in a broader social context and how they were changing human lives. So, you know, I have great faith in engineers, right? I mean, I, you know, they're smart people and they, uh, they like to think about this kind of stuff. They like, I think they like to think about the social context of the technologies they develop. And so at the university level, humanities courses, humanities classes, humanities instructors give students the tools so that when they go out into the world, they can think about this stuff. They can think about this stuff on their own. I mean, again, I get, when I hear from former students, engineering students, that's what they tell me. They say they don't remember exactly the content of the course. They just remember the, the, the tools I gave them to think about stuff. One last question. This series of which this episode is a part is titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson do you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? I'm repeating myself here, but as I said earlier in the interview, I mean, the one lesson I wanted my students to learn, right, the one lesson I wanted them to take away was that the creation of technology is not a neutral activity. 
that the creation of technology is always invested with your values as the creator, society's values at the time of the creation of, of the technology. There's no such thing as a, a neutral object. And it's your, it's your moral responsibility, in addition to your technical responsibility, to think about the purpose of the object and to think about what it's going to do in society. Thank you so much, Eric. Oh, thank you. It was fun. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>